Okay, everyone, welcome to Great Jewish Personalities. Tonight we're talking about Rabbi Judah the Prince. He was a student of the previous two personalities, Rabbi Shimon Baruchai and Rabbi Meir, amongst many other rabbis. He went and studied by all the rabbis of his time. And we learned something very interesting about him from the very beginning of his life. He was born on the very same day that Rabbi Akiva was brutally and heinously killed and murdered by the Romans. And the verse tells us, that when the sun sets, it sets over here, but it rises elsewhere. So the sun, Rabbi Akiva, who gave Torah and light to the Jewish people, when his sun set, the incomparable sun in the form of Rabbi Judah the Prince arose as well. It's, it's not surprising because the impact that Rabbi Judah the Prince is going to have on the Jewish people and the continuity of Torah is going to be on par with Rabbi Tiva. Of course, Rabbi Tiva gave us all of Torah because he was the last link, he was the last rabbi standing and his students were the ones who built the oral Torah and codified it. But Rabbi Judah the Prince is going to have a very important impact on Torah that really made sense to put him along this same line. If you remember, Rabbi Tiva died at the height of the Shmat, of the Hadrianic persecution, where they were killing rabbis and banning all forms of Torah. And one of the things that they prohibited was circumcision, bris milah. So there's an interesting story about Rabbi Judah the Prince. When he was a little baby, they circumcised him. And the Romans found out. They found out that his family, which was the family of the prince, they were the political and spiritual leaders of the Jewish people, they had a new baby and they circumcised the baby. So they brought him to Rome and the, the rules were that, they're going to, that they were going to execute the mom and the baby. So they brought him to Rome and on the way, his mother and with the new baby stopped off at an inn and she met a Gentile family. And they became friendly with the Gentile family. And she told her her predicament. She's going to Rome now because they're going to inspect to see the new baby, if the baby's circumcised, and they're, they're going to murder the baby. Now, this woman, this family that they met, they also had a little baby. And she said, you know what? Why don't we propose a deal? They swapped babies. So Rabbi Judah the prince is with this Roman family. The Roman baby, uncircumcised, he comes with the, mo- the mom of Rabbi Judah the prince. And she tends to him along the way. They come to Rome. She shows the baby. The baby's uncircumcised. They don't touch her or the baby. She brings it back and they swap him back. And this child grows into becoming the famous Antoninus, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who is going to be very close friends with Rabbi Judah the Prince. They're going to become colleagues. They're going to become uh, friends in, in scholarship as well. And they're going to together really help building the next frontier of, of Jewish life. Antoninus himself, he's going to study Torah with Rabbi Judah the Prince. He's going to convert as well. And ultimately, he's going to end up circumcised as well. Now, why is he called Rabbi Judah the Prince? So prince is an official terminology. It was an, an office. The first prince we have is Hillel. Hillel is the great, great, great grandfather of Rabbi Judah. And Hillel's descendants all held the title of prince. And this is from the Davidic line. They all came from the Davidic line, from the house of David. And Hillel's son was Rabbi Gamliel. 
His son is Rabbi Shimon. His son is also Rabbi Gamliel. His son is Rabbi Shimon. His son is Rabbi Judah. And on and on for hundreds of years, the official office, the official leader, political and spiritual leader of the people is the Nasi, the prince, also alternatively the head of the Sanhedrin, the head of the court. And they played a very important leadership role at a time where leadership was sorely lacking amongst the Jewish people. So he's told Rabbi Judah, the prince. Now, he was also inordinately wealthy. Talmud tells us that since Moses, there was no one like him who was such a leader who had such disparate qualities. He was the the richest person around, the greatest Torah style around, the most gifted in every way, the most pious. And he, because of all these capabilities and these stills, he was uniquely positioned to really achieve a major innovation that essentially saved the Jewish people. We know that Torah was under assault. That's been the theme of the past couple of weeks. Rabbi Kiva was at the end of it. End of his life is where it really picked up uh, in ferocity. Um, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Shimon, they rise to prominence when Torah was, you know, at its most vulnerable state. And the truth is that over history, Torah was all, always under a threat, at least, of, of continuance. It, there was never a guarantee that the Jewish people will be able to study unmolested. And Rabbi Judah the Prince, his most dramatic accomplishment is that he is going to really give the Jewish people a moat, a security blanket, to ensure that no matter how bad things get over the course of their history, they'll have his contribution to ensure that Torah will continue on. And this hinged essentially, or it was conditional as well, on his relationship with Antonino. So remember, they were friends, uh, or they had an interaction as babies, but in, 19, in the year 161, Marcus Aurelius Antonius becomes emperor of Rome. And there was a little window here, a little window from Roman hostilities, because he was very friendly to the Jewish people, and he was very friendly with Rabbi Judah the Prince, that really allowed major developments to happen very, very fast. He himself, Antoninus, was a really remarkable person, like we mentioned, a benevolent and friendly leader to the Jewish people. But he is considered, or he's presented as the ideal manifestation of Esau. Next week's parsha, we're going to read about Jacob and Esau. Jacob, Yaakov, and Esau. Uh, and we know that Jacob is the family of the Jewish people, and Esau is his foe. But did Esau have to be evil? No. He could have been great. He chose, uh, you know, in to whatever degree, but he chose to not become as great as he could have become. But what would be Esau in his most ideal representation? What would it look like, the relationship of Judah, of, of the Jewish people of Israel and, and Esau? What would that look in its most ideal scenario? It would be Rebbe, Rebbe Judah the prince, and Antoninus. In fact, if you look at Rashi, when Rashi describes the interactions that, that Jacob and Esau had in Euro, so Rebecca went to visit with the prophet, and the prophet told her, there's two nations in your belly, and the way nations is spelled, two proud ones, there's two proud ones in your destiny. Who are these two proud ones? Says Rashi, Zerebi Vantinus, this is Rabbi Judah the prince, and Antoninus. Antoninus is someone who 
really represented what Esau could have become. He could have been a, uh, a, a colleague and a friend and a contributor to Torah. And indeed, in a certain degree, it was actualized in Antoninus, but Esau did not necessarily have to go on a path towards total evil. Now, Marcus really himself was a really remarkable uh, individual and a philosopher. And in fact, even Roman sources describe him as the king who was the philosopher. Contemporary sources. And the Talmud records a tremendous series of events, a, a series of debates and discussions that Rabbi Judah the Prince had with Antoninus. And this in itself is noteworthy because the Talmud doesn't necessarily, it doesn't quote Torah from non-Jews. It doesn't happen in the Talmud. But there's a whole series of philosophical and theological debates that the Talmud brings between Rabbi Judah the Prince and Antoninus. And in some of them, when they had an argument, Antoninus was right, which really shows the kind of stature we held, uh, that you know, the Jewish people uh, held for him. So first one here. Antoninus asked Rebbe, Rebbe's Rebbe Judah the Prince, we'll see that's his nickname. He asked them like this, body and soul, so they get separated at, at death, and we believe that there's judgment. If someone sins, they're going to have to answer for their sins. Says, says Antoninus, I have a loophole. I'll solve the problem. Why? They can each, body and soul, can each self-exonerate. The body will say, it wasn't me that sinned, it was the soul that sinned. You know why? Ever since we're separated, I'm sitting in the grave like an immovable rock. Clearly, I'm not the one that sinned, it was the soul that sinned. And the soul can say, it wasn't me that sinned, it was the body that sinned, because ever since we've been separated, I'm floating like a bird. I'm totally useless. So Antoninus is asking Rabbi Judah the Prince, how could the Almighty ever pin a person for their misdeeds? How could there be any judgment? Because you take apart a human, body and soul, you separate them, and each one of them can deflect the criticism for their deeds, for their misdeeds, on the other one. And conversely, each one of them cannot be rewarded for their positive deeds because each one of them can claim that they did it because the other one is not doing any positive deeds without them. That was his question. The Gemara records this in the book of Sanhedrin. So Rabbi Judah the Prince responds, I'll give you a parable. How? What is this comparable to? It says there's a king, and the king has a beautiful orchard full of luscious fruits, and he commissions two guards to watch it for him. One of the guards is blind, and one of the guards is lame. And he says, you guys are together in charge. Make sure nothing happens to those beautiful fruits. And the king leaves, and they're sitting there, the blind guardsmen and the lame guardsmen, the cripple. And the lame guard says to the blind one, he says, oh, look what I see, these beautiful, luscious fruits. Let's, let's make a deal. Let's make a pact. You'll give me a ride. You'll give me a piggyback ride. I'll go on your shoulders. And you're blind, but you can walk fine, and I'll direct you where to go. We'll eat all the, we'll, we'll take all the fruits and we'll eat them. Fine. So the cripple climbs on the back and he hobbles along and they start, eventually they eat all the fruits. And then they go back and they're hanging out in the grass and the king comes back and he looks at his orchard. He says, wait, where's my fruits? I told you guys to watch the fruits. So the cripple says, look at me. I can't walk. It wasn't, obviously it was the blind guy. And the blind guy says, I'm blind. Obviously it was the cripple. 
So what does the king do? The king does. He takes the cripple. He once again puts it on the back, on the piggyback of the blind guy. And he doesn't judge them as two separate, distinct entities. He judges them as one. So too, says Rabbi Judah the prince, the Almighty is going to take the soul, <coughs> thrust it back into the body, and judge someone as one. It's such a beautiful story and a beautiful example, beautiful parable in this debate that existed here between Rabbi Judah the Prince and Antoninus. And I think there's some really nice lessons just for us in life from this construct. First of all, I think a lot of people erroneously believe that in life we're tasked with achieving something that's beyond us. You know, we're born and we're put into the world and we don't know anything. And there's something that we need to get, something we need to accomplish, and we need to pursue and achieve it. Here, in this example of Rabbi Judah the Prince, he's telling us, no, you have the orchard already. The fruits are already there. Your job is just to maintain status quo, just to preserve what you already have, not to pursue what you don't have. Which to me is always, it's, it's very heartwarming. Because... It's, it's frustrating to think that there's something there that we need to do and we don't know what it is and it's so complicated and so many mitzvahs and, you know, what's the, you know, what, what's the distilled version of our life mission? And here we go. We have a distilled version of our life mission. Preserve the proverbial fruits. Don't sin, i.e. Now what that means, maybe we'll see in the next example. But that's a remarkable lesson. And I, I you know, I think it's, it's, it, you know, it's cheerful to think that we don't need to accomplish anything. We just need to make sure we don't regress. Number one. Number two, I think there's another remarkable lesson here. What he's telling us is that judgment happens when body and soul are reunited. But what is this reunification of body and soul? In life, we have the cripple, and he's on the back of the blind guard. And... In judgment, it's the same thing. It's almost the body and soul are married in life. They get separated at death, and they get remarried again at judgment. But that's not Olam Haba. That's not resurrection. Resurrection is an entirely new recreation of man, not soul being in a body host, rather built out of the soul a new entity, where soul is dominant, and body is just there. And I think it's very interesting the way he presents it. He says, oh, body and soul were together, they were undone, and we just put them back together in the same way. We take the soul and throw it back in the body. Whereas, olam haba, that's not judgment. That's for tzaddikim, and that is a total recreation, an entirely new paradigm of what a human is. Now, just to finish this thought, the Gemara that continues and says, Antoninus asks Rebbe, which is always a, it's a nickname for Rebbe Judah the Prince, when does someone get a soul? When does someone get a neshama? Does it get it from conception or from the formation of the zygote? It's a couple of days later. So initially, Rebbe Judah the Prince says, from the formation. And then Antoninus responds, well, if you have a piece of meat and it just lies out there being 
uh, unrefrigerated, it's going to spoil. Certainly, if you have any physicality and it doesn't have a spiritual component to it, it's automatically going to start to decompose. And indeed, Rabbi Judah, the prince, responds, you're right. We actually get soul at conception, which is a big insight. Like, soul at conception, where do we learn that law? It comes from Antoninus. And Rabbi Judah, the prince, agreed. And it's, it's also, I think, a fantastic lesson that nothing, no physical, materialistic entity can exist outside of a spiritual force to keep it, to, to give it vitality. And the Gemara continues. When does someone get a Yetzirah? At what point in the development to get a Yetzirah? So Rajur the Prince suggests that he gets it from the formation, which is early on in the gestation process, about 40 days. Says, says Antoninus, he says, no, if the child in utero already had a Yetzirah, then the kid would kick his mom. He wouldn't be happy being constricted. And he would force himself to be, uh, to, you know, to come out and would die. And Rabbi Judah the Prince responds, you're right. And the child only gets the Yetzirah at birth. And it's really remarkable. Like the, the foundational blocks of human conflict, where we have a soul and the Yetzirah that are uh, counteracting each other, how that actually is built and how that's developed, that's learned from these uh, from these debates that Rabbi Judah the Prince had with Antonio. So as an example, we know the Talmud tells us that a child in utero, he knows all of Torah. At birth, he forgets it all. Why? Well, what happens? Why does a child know of Torah? Why does he forget it at birth? This is the answer. The child has a soul from conception. The soul innately knows Torah. So for the duration of the gestation, child knows Torah. There's nothing to stop the Torah. At birth, he gets the Yetzirah. Yetzirah overwhelms the soul, and its influence gets muted, and its effect, i.e. the Torah, gets forgotten. And thus, the child at birth forgets Torah. This is really really shows that the relationship that Rabbi Judah the Prince and Antoninus had was one of, of really sophisticated philosophical and theological debates and their friendship and their mutual appreciation for Torah really laid the groundwork for the immense undertaking. I, I, I would venture to say the greatest collaborative scholastic effort in human history to be undertaken by Rabbi Judah the Prince and his people. So we have a lot of factors here. We have the relationship with the emperor, a... Uh, a lull, so to speak, in, Ro- in Roman hostilities to the Jewish people, immense personal wealth to fund the entire project, the unquestioned Torah leader and political leader of the Jewish people, and he undertook the project to write down the Mishnah. Which to us, you want a Mishnah, you can buy one online from Amazon, you get the t- Kindle version for two ninety nine, but at that time, really meant ent- you know, entirely recreating the Jewish the Jewish world. How so? There's a little background here. Oral Torah, we know that when the Almighty gave the Jewish people Torah, he gave them the entirety of Torah, which is an oral component and a written component as well. And in fact, when Moshe is teaching the Jewish people Torah for the duration of the 40 day, of 40 years, for the duration of the 40 years in 
The wilderness, he's teaching them primarily oral Torah. The written Torah, i.e. the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, that only appears at the end of the 40 years, at the end of Moshe's life. He writes 13 copies, he gives one to each tribe and a 13th for, that was kept in posterity in the Ark. And the oral Torah is, is what, it, what does it mean? It means how to live as a Jew. Torah is the instructions of God. What does he expect from us? How are we to accomplish his will? How do we fulfill mitzvahs? All that is Torah, is the Almighty's instructions for us. And that was primarily given over in an oral format. I.e. parents tell their kids, okay, this is what you do as a Jew. This is what the holidays are. This is what Shabbos is. This is what Tzvon looks like. This is how mezuzah is positioned, etc., etc. And the myriads of laws and behaviorisms as a Jew, that's part of the collected corpus of oral Torah. The written Torah indeed contains a condensed version of all of Torah, but it's condensed and encoded in a way that if you read the written Torah, you wouldn't necessarily know how to fulfill it. You'd read about on the holiday of Sukkot, we take a really beautiful fruit. Which one's that? Is it a pomegranate? Is it an apple? Is it an orange? You wouldn't know. It's, it's hidden. It's, it's encrypted. It's encoded. You wouldn't know how, what tefillin looked like and how to observe Shabbos and all the myriads of laws of purity and impurity and sacrifices and all that you wouldn't know because that's not the goal. The goal of written Torah is to have a skeletal outline of Torah, but also to have the capacity within it to cross-check and verify someone's oral Torah tradition. So we have a very complex structure of conveyance of Torah before Rabbi Judah the Prince. We have a written Torah, which is five books, 5,845 sentences. It's very fixed. And you want to make sure you, you pass it on without mistakes, but that's sort of easy. But then you have a coinciding body of knowledge that is voluminous. It's, it's, there's, there's a tremendous amount of information that's not, never written down in a finalized, codified, canonized version. It's passed on from parent to child, from teacher to student, from generation to generation. And all that is maintained in a very fluid way. People go to study in school and they learn and they memorize and they memorize enormous amounts of information. All that's part of the oral Torah. And when the Jewish people are existing with stability, it's possible to do it. Every student, at a minimum, is sent to 14 years of tutelage under a great rabbi. And what do you do for 14 years? You study Torah for 14 to 18 hours a day, and you memorize enormous amounts of information. And by the way, what's the benefit of that? You have an entire nation that is groomed under tremendously rigorous conditions of intellectual uh, achievement and a nation that has bonds with previous generations. Whereas if you wanted to just be an average Jew, you don't want to be a great tzaddik. You want to be an average Jew. You want to just know what to do on Shabbos. You'd have to spend 14 years in, in study. That's what you'd have to do just to, just to know the basics. So just think about what a nation of, of geniuses we spawned because of the oral Torah. And this was all by design. In fact, I uh, actually collected a list of reasons why the oral Torah had to be oral. 
Now, to be fair, parts of the oral Torah were written down, but it was never formalized, it was never publicized. It was actually, it's actually forbidden for a teacher to teach a finalized, canonized text of oral Torah. Everyone kept notes for themselves, but you keep your notes, maybe you pass on some of your notes, but it's never published, it's never finalized, it's never, this is the oral Torah. No, oral Torah is oral. And I, I have a list here, just some examples why the oral Torah had to be oral. A, it's a better form of instruction. It's just, there's less room for mistakes. A written word, look at the Constitution. It's a written word, it's not so many words. And look how, how many disagreements we have mere 200 years after it's being, after it's written. Obviously, when there is fixed rigidity in instruction, without allowance for inflection and without taking care to ensure that mistakes aren't uh, aren't perpetuated, you're going to have diversity, which is very bad. It's, it's very bad in the context of losing truth of Torah. There is a realm for diversity of Torah as well, but to have laws of Torah that are corrupted is a terrible thing. And oral Torah ensured that that won't happen. Also, principles. When you teach a principle, it's applied in many different areas. And that's much easier if the principles are malleable. Every generation has its own examples, right? If you look at idioms and parables and metaphors that are 250 years old, sometimes it's hard to see how that actually, you know, the, the language changes and people's understandings of issues change. But, if you are able to convey an oral principle without it being fixed, without being constrained to a finalized written format, you can ensure that the principle is able to take on different forms with every generation. Other examples, other reasons why the Torah was kept oral, to keep it out of the hands of Gentiles. It may sound controversial, <laughs> but once the Torah was written down, the Gemara even tells us, the Gemara tells that the Romans would send, they would send teams of investigators, of censors, to go to the yeshiva and study the yeshiva for, for decades. Why? Because they wanted to see if there's anything problematic with the Torah. The Gentiles are going to tell us what to do? They're going to tell us what to study? It's God's Torah. That doesn't even pass their censorship. Torah's written down. And in fact, once the written Torah was translated into Greek by Ptolemy in the 3rd century before the Common Era, those are days of mourning. Because it's not the the Jewish Torah. Anyone could go into artstroll.com or to Amazon and buy a copy of the Talmud now. And you know, there's dozens of websites online today that are dedicated to taking the Talmud out of context and showing how the Jewish people are barbaric and they hate everyone, all nonsense. Well, that's what happens when you write down the oral Torah. And for all these reasons, and I have some more here, if the only way for Torah to be learned is total immersion in it, well, who rises to the top? The people that are most dedicated to it. So we're able to link scholarship and Torah knowledge and proficiency with Torah greatness. Because there's no way outside of the matrix for someone to just download information in their head. But, once you have the written Torah, the oral Torah being written, it's somewhat of an equalizer. 
where you have someone who's not a Torah scholar, someone who is a Torah scholar, and there could be someone on a level playing field, which which is bad because you can't separate who are the great Torah scholars of the generation. And there's many other benefits. I made a list of ten here, just a few more. Jewish community. The only way for someone to study Torah, you can't study Torah in your basement. There's no way for someone to study. If oral Torah is the only way we can learn, there's no way to do it unless you're part of a community. Then that creates a dynamic religion where people know each other and they study from, from great scholars. And by the way, it's not just Torah. You study from a great scholar, you get to learn their mannerisms and their behaviorism. That's called Shema Shamachacham. You're able to learn and emulate someone who's a great Torah scholar. If you have the idiot's guide to the oral Torah in your basement, you're sitting there eating Cheetos and drinking Diet Coke, and you're studying Torah. And that's great. I understand it is great. But it's a step down of the instruction you get in an environment that totally exudes Torah and Torah ideals. And lastly, I think this is also very important. Having an oral Torah as the only means of conveyance of Torah does not allow any room for failure. We cannot say, oh, as a generation, we're going to take a generation off. We're going to, we're going to opt out from intensive Torah study for one generation. You can't, because you do that, oral Torah will be forgotten. There's no document you could say, we'll pass that on to the next generation and they'll study it and Torah will continue. So that essentially demanded from the Jewish nation as a whole over the 1400 years when the oral Torah was entirely oral, it demanded that they never took their foot off the gas. They never had complacency. They never said, oh, we'll just, we'll, we don't, we'll worry about the Torah in 10, in 10 years. No, you can't take any time off. And that's what they might have really wanted for us to be totally engaged in Torah and pursuit of greatness. But there was a problem. The problem was, is that, you know, we spoke about it in recent weeks. The Romans and the dispersal of the Jewish people, the prohibition against Torah study and certainly public Torah study, the conditions were really lacking for oral Torah to continue. Maimonides tells us, he gives an example. He says sometimes someone has gangrene on their legs. What do you do? How do you save the person? you got to cut off the leg. Which doctor, which, which physician is going to cut off the leg of, 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 of a patient? Well, the answer is, if that's the only way to save them, that's the only option you have. Rabbi Judah the prince, in his position, with all the factors uh, at play, he made the calculation that we have to amputate, so to speak. We have to do the unthinkable to gather all the scholars together, to gather all the oral Torah traditions together, to take all the notes from previous generations, to put our heads together and figure out a finalized, authoritative, codified, and canonized book of Mishnah, of oral Torah, because otherwise, Torah may be forgotten. In fact, uh, the example or the verse that we give for this is it's a time for action for God because otherwise Torah will be destroyed. Maimonides tells us, why did Rabbi Judah the Prince, this is a quote from his introduction to his book, why did Rabbi Judah the Prince write down the Mishnah and not leave it the way it was? What was wrong with the preceding 1500 years of Jewish history? Because he saw that students were becoming fewer and fewer there was a diminishing in the numbers, total numbers of students. Calamities were happening all the time. 
The Wicca government, which is a reference to Rome, was extending its domain and increasing its power, and the Jews were wandering and reaching far and remote places. The Jewish people were becoming more decentralized and having more restrictions on Torah study. He thus wrote a work that serves as a handbook for all, so it could be rapidly studied and would not be forgotten, and they created the Mishnah and uh, ensured that the Torah would not be forgotten. Rabbi Judah the Prince in Jewish writings and Jewish literature is sometimes called rabbi. Why is he called rabbi with the, the moniker rabbi? Because he truly is the rabbi of the Jewish people, specifically for this contribution. He undertook, he made a decision, can you imagine, going against 1,500 years of tradition, especially in a nation that is obsessed with tradition. But he made the calculation, and we exist, thanks to that decision, to amputate the leg, to go against the Torah, to save the Torah, and to write down the Mishnah. The, the scale of the Mishnah is unfathomable, it's monumental. It's 63 books, in, broken down into six different sections. A section talks about agricultural law, a section that talks about holidays, a section that talks about marriage and divorce, damages into personal law, and purity, very complex and vast laws about purity and impurity, and a section that talks about sacrifices, sacrificial law. All that in collaboration with thousands, of legitimately thousands of rabbis, written in an unbelievable way, it's very tersely. It's, it's just astonishing how he, he managed to capture the flavor of oral Torah in a written format. It's unbelievable. Just that on its own really gives you a sense of the greatness of him and his team. He, he knew all the reasons why oral Torah was oral. All the benefits of oral Torah he knew very well. But he had a problem he had to write it down. So he managed to write it in a way that doesn't compromise the reasons why it was initially oral. So for example, he wrote it in, in shorthand so, almost. He didn't elaborate it. So you have a Mishnah, you have the law, but like the written Torah, it's just a skeletal, skeletal outline of oral Torah. In order to really understand it, you'd still need to have a teacher. You'd still need to spend your time in the houses of scholarship. And that's why afterwards you wonder, if the Mishnah was written down, why do we have to have Talmud and Midrash and Halacha, all these other works that came afterwards, because he specifically avoided writing it all down because that would compromise the reasons why it was initially oral. He succeeded in reshaping Jewish life. He, the work of the Mishnah is a work that was studied for hundreds of years by the most intelligent people around to try to draw from it its lessons. Not only that, the Mishnah itself was also memorized. He took an existing body of oral Torah that was memorized. He wrote on a Mishnah. The Mishnah itself was memorized as well. So, for example, this is a really remarkable notion here. The Talmud sometimes tells us, Talmud's, the Talmud is the, is the book that came after the Mishnah. 
The Talmud tells us that sometimes when it's analyzing a Mishnah, it would say, Chesuri Mikhsaravahikhtani. The words of the Mishnah are missing. Which is strange. Rabbi Judah the Prince wrote the Mishnah. Why would the words of the Mishnah be missing? Seems really bizarre. So one answer is, is that, well, he wrote it in a way, in, in like a stanza format, so people could sing it. So sometimes when there's some extra words, they cut off those extra words to make a rhyme, which is a strange idea, but someone says that. But the real answer is, because he wanted to write it in an imperfect manner. Because you read a Mishnah, and it doesn't make any sense. It obviously, it doesn't make any sense. And the only way to understand it is if it's lacking words. It's really, I, in, in, in the true version, it should have said more words. But he was able to convey that necessity for adding words. Think about that. He wrote a Mishnah in shorthand version, which mandated that you would know as a reader, if you would truly, truly analyze it, you would know there's something missing and what those missing words are. Well, the only way you would do that is if you actually concentrated on a tremendous degree. So he managed to really, really capture the oral Torah because you'd study it and he said, wait a minute, there's, there's some, there's obvious questions. It must be lacking words. And you know what? You're right. Well, why did he do it like that? He did it by design. All that's by design. Him and his team, they get together. We want the people who read this to be confounded. And the only way to do it, they have to ask their teacher, they have to study, they have to analyze further and further, and thus the flavor of Torah uh, is maintained. He had another nickname. His nickname was Our Holy Teacher because he manifested, along with his outstanding scholarship, scintillating personal character and holiness. Gemara tells us that someone asked him, this might be, I think this will be surprising for people today. Someone asked him, why does everyone call you Rabbeinu HaKadosh, our holy teacher? He really had a lot of, a lot of nicknames, right? Rabbi Judah the Prince, Rabbi, and our holy, why is he called our holy teacher? And it's evident from the story he was called like that during his lifetime. And he tells them, in my entire life, I never looked at my circumcision, never once. Alternatively, he never let his hands go beneath his belt. Never in his life. He always held his hand like this. He was in total control of his limbs. Total mindfulness to never allow his hands to move in a way that wasn't perfectly choreographed. Which is unthinkable for us. We can't really even grasp the kind of personal self-control that that would, that that would demand. The Gemara says that when he was about to die, there's a lot of stories about what happened when he's about to die. He was about to die, he took his hands, and he lifted them in the air, lifted them in the air, and he said, these ten fingers, you should know that all I did with these ten fingers was study Torah. And I may have been the wealthiest person around, I didn't even benefit from my wealth, even the amount of a single pinky. None, none. It was all... Everything, his entire life was dedicated to God. The Gemara tells he was sick. And the people were devastated because they, they thought they knew he was on his deathbed. But the notion of losing such a person was unthinkable to them. 
So they announced, if anyone, if anyone declares the Rabbi Judah Prince died, we're going to take a sword and slash them. We're going to kill them with a sword. Which, if you think about that, that's a nice threat. So what does everyone do? No one wants to get slashed with a threat, with, with a sword. Everyone starts praying. Rabbi Judah the Prince is dying, but everyone's keeping him alive because the entire Jewish nation has accepted upon themselves total commitment to pray. And he's, so to speak, torn. On one hand, the heavens, so to speak, they want him. The angels and God, they want him. And they're trying to pull him up. And the Jewish people, everyone's praying together. No, don't take him. And he's just kind of hanging in, in balance. So his, his maidservant, he had someone who worked in his house. He had a big bustling household. She went on top of the roof and she saw he was in suffering. And she took a glass vessel and she dropped it off the roof and it made a big shattering sound that everyone stopped praying for a second and he died. His lesson, just a remarkable lesson, just a quick lesson um, that he that he taught in the Perkei Avos, in Chapters of the Fathers, he instructed, You have to be careful with even a minor mitzvah as you would a major mitzvah. We have a tendency to assign hierarchy. Well, this is an important mitzvah. Yom Kippur, oh, it's important. Every other mitzvah we're in filling on a Tuesday, hmm, not so important. He says, no, you don't know the value of, of any mitzvah. We have to, if the mitzvah is an action that the Almighty tells us to do, we have to value it as if it's what it is, which is an instruction from God. How can you say, well, this instruction from God, this I'm going to keep, everything. How do you say that? And he says, you should also calculate the loss of a mitzvah with the benefit of a mitzvah. How much pain does it cost you to do a mitzvah? Oh, so much pain, right? Oh, gosh, really, it's not so much. But what do you gain from doing a single mitzvah? You gain eternity, a place in Allah Haba. How could you just do the calculation, the simple cost, uh, cost basis, a cost, uh, analysis, and just do the math and you'll do, you, all you do is mitzvahs. And similarly, you want to, you want to sin. Okay, we well, get a benefit. It's a lot, it's a lot of pleasure to sin. But what's it going to cost you? For one sin, you taint your soul for eternity. How could you possibly make that? calculation and say, I'm going to sin and I'll benefit. No, it's illogical. And lastly, he says, look at three things, examine three ideas, and you'll never sin. You should know what's above you. A seeing eye, a hearing ear, and all your actions are written in a book. Everything we do, the mighty keeps track of, and like we learned from Judah the Prince all the way at the beginning, we're here, we got a body and a soul, we get the blind guard and the lame guard, and we're, we're looking at the trees and they look so luscious to us, and we wanna, we wanna, we wanna partake, we wanna indulge. But you should know that the Almighty says no. And it would be insane, the trade-off is illogical to say, I wanna have this fruit, so to speak, when you know that the Almighty is coming back and he's beckoning, everything's being written down, there's no way to escape it. The Talmud leaves a remarkable eulogy for him. And it says, when Rabbi Judah the Prince died, there was no more people of humility and fear of sin. Clearly we see, despite the fact that he was the wealthiest person around, he didn't benefit from it. He was a very collaborative Torah scholar. He always tried to see the opinion of other people. We see even when Antoninus came 
Antoninus is a non-Jew. He's arguing with the rabbi. He, he should, he should wipe the floor with him. But Antoninus says something that he agrees with. He says, you know what? You're right. And I'm wrong. And this law I learned from Antoninus. An unbelievable humility that he demonstrated. And of course, fear of sin. To him, the sin was just so palpable. And the negative impacts of a sin were so devastating that would be totally ridiculous. That how could you possibly make the calculation that it's worth to do? Indeed, Rabbi Judah the Prince is forever enshrined in the Jewish in Jewish life and Jewish history because of his greatness. Of course, his personal greatness, his greatness in Torah, but most of all, his decision may have been. Controversial at this time, who knows? But his decision to take all of oral Torah with all its complexities, with the vastness of, uh, of its laws, to write it down in the Mishnah in a remarkable way and to ensure that Torah gets perpetuated. That was the theme of the whole century. The whole century was great Torah styles and great Torah leaders to ensure that the Jewish people will continue.